sharing your gifts with us. We appreciate that. Let me begin this morning just by asking you a question. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? Wow. That's great. Big numbers. You are most fortunate. You are most fortunate. The blessings of a Christian environment where the Scriptures are loved and taught, where God is worshipped and obeyed, where the crushing and devastating effect of open sin are not experienced, that is a gift from God. It is a, it is a true gift. Yet, along with the tremendous blessing of growing up in that environment, there is a real and present danger. The danger is that you can become inoculated with Christianity and never get the real disease. You can have a form of Christianity, a cultural form of Christianity. You're missing the life-transforming power that comes by the eternal Spirit who dwells within you, uniting you to Jesus Christ. It's a real danger. Moms and dads raising your children in Christian homes, you have a tremendous responsibility. The responsibility is not to mistake conformity for conversion. Conformity for conversion. The idea that a knowledge of the truth is sufficient. For it is not a knowledge of the truth, it is the possession of the truth by faith that unites one to Jesus Christ. Young people, you can grow up in Sunday school, start out in the nursery. We heard testimonies this morning, didn't we? Every time the doors are open, you're here. Sunday school, Awana, on into junior high ministry, high school ministry, even off into the college and career. Your whole life brought up inside the church. And yet there can be no reality. You can have active involvement. Go on missions trips. Participate in door-to-door evangelism. Share the faith without even possessing it yourself. You can memorize great portions of the Word of God. Chapters. Books. And yet you still do not know Christ. You can avoid some of the more flagrant and open sin that so devastates our society. Sexual sin can be not part of your experience. And you still don't know Christ. You can be clean on the outside. Like a whitewashed tomb. Inside, full of dead man's bones and all kinds of uncleanness. 
proximity to Christ is not the same as saving faith. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's page 1126. Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning because we need to set a background and a context for where we're going. I've entitled this message and the ones that will follow, The Danger of Growing Up Christian. The Danger of Growing Up Christian. Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice or judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you bear the name Jew... And rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? 
You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, through having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. For he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. We spent a, quite a bit of time in chapter 1 discussing what we entitled the deep, dark descent of humanity down into the abyss of depravity. And by the time Paul reaches the end of chapter 1, down to verse 32, his indictment of the unbelieving pagan world is complete. He has brought them before the bar of his justice. And he has indicted them from every conceivable angle. And the verdict is in they are guilty before God. They deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon them. It is obvious that it should come to them. But, what about those people who have not lost the knowledge of God? What about those that are not openly involved in the vices of idolatry and perversity that Paul spells out in chapter 1? What about those whose moral behavior, at least on the surface, appears to differ from the people described in Romans chapter 1? What about them? Do they need to be brought before the bar of justice too? Do they need to feel the weight of the indictment as well? Does their guilt need to be brought forward? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Paul will now do that here in chapter 2 of Romans. He's changing directions now in chapter 2. He's turning to a new group of people. Who are they? Who is he addressing in chapter 2? Look at verse 1. He begins, he says, you are without excuse. Every man of you. He uses a, a form of address that is not specific. It's clear by the time we get down to verse 17 of chapter 2 that he is speaking to the Jews, right? But if you bear the name Jew, he says. So by the time we get to verse 17, it's very clear that he is speaking to the Jewish nation. But how about in verse 1? Who is he talking to in verse one and following. The form of address that Paul uses here, by the way, in chapter 2 and over into chapter 3 is, a, is an interesting literary style. It's called a diatribe. 
a diatribe. And what that means is, uh, and it's a classical form of, of argumentation, and in a diatribe, what the person does is he gathers up the arguments that would be most commonly raised against his point of view, and he puts them in the mouths of an imaginary opponent. And then he answers those objections. And so in chapter 2 and 3, that's indeed what Paul is doing. He is answering objections to his gospel. Verses 3 and 4, you can see it. The questions are right there in the text for you, right? Do you suppose this or do you think lightly? You can go over to chapter 3. Paul says, then what advantage has a Jew? That's a question that somebody would have asked him. And so using this form of a diatribe, he places this in their mouth. Verse 7, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? These are questions that Paul formulates in order that he might answer them through this diatribe. But who is he talking to in chapter 2, the beginning part of the chapter? Who is it that he's addressing? Is he talking to the Jews? Is he talking to Gentile moralists? Maybe it's a group of people who don't, excuse me, don't quite fit under chapter 1. So there are certainly and have been throughout history those who have, who have condemned these kinds of vices that are outlined in chapter 1. Maybe he's talking to them. Or maybe he's speaking to both Jews and Gentile moralists here in the beginning of chapter 1. The commentators are all over the place on this. You can't find a uniform position. So after going back and forth this week and stacking them up, right? that's the way you do exegesis by majority rule, right? You, no, I'm just teasing. But after going back and forth this week, I have now landed in I'm of the persuasion that he's talking to the Jews beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. The reason I believe that is that Paul splits mankind into two groups, not three. Right? Verse 16, chapter 1. The power of God for salvation, the gospel is to the Jew and also to the Greek. There's only two groups there. Verse 9, chapter 2. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil for the Jew and also for the Greek. Paul habitually splits Humanity into two groups. There are the Jews and there are everybody else, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the nations. I think it's what he's doing here. Beyond that, historically, the Jewish nation always had an attitude of moral superiority when it came to the Gentiles. They always believed the Gentiles were defiled and abandoned by God. Some even went so far as to say they were created to fuel the fires of hell. So there was this attitude of moral superiority and certainly in first century Judaism of that, ta of that time. Beyond that, down in verse 4, he talks about the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. That kind of, of expression, kindness, forbearance, and patience, seems to me to allude to the faithfulness of God to the nation of Israel in keeping with His covenant promises to them. So it seems to me that it, it sort of sums up God's covenant with the nation. Beyond that, verse 17 makes it clear by that point that He's talking to the Jewish nation and the Jewish people for sure. And it appears to me to be rather an abrupt transition 
in verse 17 to move from Gentile moralists to Jews in verse 17. So I think it's Jews in sight all the way along. And what Paul is doing here, I believe, is he is providing in this second chapter a warning to the Jewish people not to assume that their Jewishness is sufficient to provide them with a right standing before God. Remember, the first three chapters of Romans, the whole point of these first three chapters is to knock out the props underneath all of mankind so that Paul can later say that all have sinned and what? Falling short of the glory of God. He has laid a devastating case against the Gentile nations at the end of chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Now, I believe, he is turning to systematically dismantle first century Judaism and their arrogant pride that somehow God has accepted them because of their Jewishness. And so he will, in chapter 2, dismantle their three strongest defenses. And when he is done doing this, he has brought them to their knees as well so that they too might realize the truth of verse 17 that we require the righteousness that comes from God to us by faith. So in verses 1-16 through of chapter 2, Paul decimates the Jewish idea of morality. Jewish morality is taken apart, dismantled. Verses 17 through 24, he deals with their religion, summarized in the law. The law. And then in verses 25 to 29, He dismantles their national identity, most frequently put forth with the notion of circumcision. That's what made you a Jew. So he attacks their morality, he attacks their religion, and he attacks their national identity. And when he is done, the nation itself will come to see that they require a substitute, a savior. Now, how does a section of this letter to the Romans that is specifically addressed to first century Judaism apply to us today? How do we bridge 20 centuries so that we can hear the truth for ourselves today? How does it apply to children growing up in Christian homes? I think the application is very strong. The Jews were guilty of relying on their morality, their religion, and their circumcision for their right standing before God. I believe there is a clear and present danger for the children growing up within this church, within Christian homes, of substituting externals for the internal life change that comes only by the Spirit. Substituting their heritage, their religion, their morality, and somehow assuming God will accept them on the basis of that. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
So as we unpack chapter 2, we are going to apply it in that way. It is for the youth of this church. It is for the parents of the children of this church. Paul's got something to say to us. So this morning, let's take up the first danger of growing up Christian. The first danger of growing up Christian so that we will recognize that even good kids need Christ. Verse 1, Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Paul begins this verse with therefore. One of the first things they teach you in hermeneutics is that when you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself, why is it therefore, right? What's it there for? It introduces the results of something that has gone before. It's a summary kind of word. It, it gathers up the thoughts and then will make application based on whatever has gone before it. The interesting thing here is, though, that it's not entirely clear what it is that goes before the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 2 that Paul's referring to. So there are a number of opinions or possible explanations. I've kind of boiled it down to two. So I've just kind of boiled it all down into two big ones here. So let me just kind of give them to you. One basic idea is that the therefore in the beginning of chapter 2 connects back all the way to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Paul's looking way back there. Because God's wrath is revealed against all men, and because God is evident to all men, that's kind of the summary of what's gone before, therefore, those who judge and do the same are without excuse because they know it is wrong. That's a possible understanding of the argument that Paul's about to launch into. The other one, the other idea connects it with all of chapter 1, really verses 20 through 32. I'm inclined more in this direction. The argument goes this way. Because it has been established that the immor immortal, try it again, immoral practices of the Gentiles are an abomination to God, therefore... Whoever does them is without excuse when they practice the very same evils that they condemn in others. So I think that is what he's really connecting. I think the connection is between those who do and condemn rather than between those who do what they know to be wrong. Those who do and condemn. Paul is saying here that Jewish morality is no defense against the indictment of God because it is built upon a blind and hypocritical facade of self-righteousness. It's interesting, by the way, to note uh, the Gentiles in verse 32 says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give a hearty approval to those who practice them. They know sin is wrong, 
But they say it is right, and they do it. The people in chapter 2, verse 1, they know sin is wrong. They say it is wrong, and they do it anyway. They do it anyway. Which is worse? Which is worse? Previously, Paul says the Gentiles are without excuse. Verse 20, chapter 1. Right? Since the creation of the world, God has been made known to them and they have clearly seen Him. Therefore, they are without excuse. Now here in chapter 2, verse 1, the Jewish nation is said to be without excuse. They're without excuse because the very act of condemning others, they automatically condemn themselves because they're guilty of the exact same things. That's the argument that he's making here. It is their hypocritical condemnation, condemnatory spirit that leaves them without excuse. It's in the very act of condemning that they condemn themselves. Because they are guilty of habitually practicing, present tense verb, the same behaviors that they are condemning in others. In the diverse, practice the same things. Present active imperative, ongoing practice. Now, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine the Jewish people engaging in the sexual perversions that Paul's laid out in verses 24 to 27, certainly of chapter 1. So some commentators conclude on the basis of that, that Paul's probably just referring to the to the vice list over in verses 29 through through uh, 31. Maybe that's his reference. He says you do the same things. Maybe he's referring to that. Others uh, think that perhaps he's really talking about the inner motives of the heart. You know, kind of what Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You remember Matthew 5, verse 28, he says, if you, you know, if you look lustfully at a woman, you're guilty of committing adultery with her already in your heart. So he, Jesus is, is applying the law and it's at its intention that it's really begins on the inside. And that's certainly possible, too. But I think textually, at least for me, I'm, I'm left with understanding Paul's Statement here that you who judge practice the same things as a reference back to the entire list of an explanation of depravity of chapter one. I think that Paul is saying that you judge these things, but you do the exact same things, not selectively, but in, you know, fully, fully, completely. That there's no real moral difference. We certainly know from the Old Testament that the nation of Judah had descended into such debauchery that it led to their ultimate demise, right? Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 9, the writer says, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. That's an amazing indictment. That the chosen people, the nation of Judah, the ones from whom the Messiah would come, had descended to a level that they were worse than the Canaanites that God had slaughtered because of their sin.
We also know that by the first century, that the nation was so consumed with its own pharisaical self-righteousness that when true righteousness was offered to them through Jesus Christ, they not only refused, but they called for His crucifixion. Given a chance after the resurrection, Acts 3 verses 19 to 21, to repent and to receive the Messiah that the time of blessings could come, they refused there too. Clearly the nation is hard. So is evangelicalism. So is evangelicalism. Based on the polls that I'm able to get and read, the levels of outward morality within evangelicalism are essentially parallel to that of those who profess no allegiance to Christ at all. Based on the woeful lack of understanding of the substitutionary atonement, amongst those who profess Christ as their Savior, I would say that a works-based righteousness has rolled like a tidal wave over evangelicalism. And most people believe that God has accepted them because they're pretty good people. Go door to door with me in this city. Listen to what people tell you. First telling you that they are Christians. And then describing how God accepts them because of their good efforts. I think evangelicalism looks a lot like first century Judaism. Clean on the outside and inside full of dead man's bones. You know, Jesus warned about the danger of condemning others. Right, Matthew 7. Jesus says, Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not judge lest you be judged. The same standard of measure will be applied to you, Jesus says. The judgment that Jesus is prohibiting here is the same judgment that Paul is prohibiting in Romans chapter 2. It is the hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of other people while at the same time covering over our own corruption. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 13 and following, Jesus scalds the Pharisees. Hypocrite, he says, over and over and over again. You pretend to be right, and on the inside you are so corrupt. 
We have a perfect example, by the way, the kind of behavior that uh, Jesus is talking about here, Paul's talking about. Back in the Old Testament with King David and Bathsheba. Do you remember that story? After David had had the adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then arranged for the murder of her husband Uriah to cover it all up, the prophet Nathan came to him and told him a story. Do you remember this? He told him a story about an imaginary family that had a single lamb, a pet lamb, actually slept with them. And there was a rich and powerful man in the community and someone came to him and he wanted to throw a feast, a banquet. But he didn't want to use any of his own flock. And so he took the lamb, read Bathsheba, from this family. You remember how David responded when he heard that story? Oh, was he indignant. He was outraged. Someone who is rich and powerful would do that to take the lamb from a small, helpless family. That man ought to die, he says. And Nathan took that long, bony prophet's finger, right? Stuck it right out there. Said, David, you are the man. You are the man. In that which you condemn, you are guilty. Beloved, it is way too easy. Just way too easy. When you grow up in a sheltered Christian environment. You've got parents who are serious about God's holiness and that's a good thing way too easy to fall prey to the same indictment. If the focus of your parenting is on the externals, if you find yourself defining holiness in terms of behavioral outcomes, we do this, we don't do that. We go here, we don't go there. We wear these kind of clothes, we don't wear those kind of clothes. We listen to this kind of music, we don't listen to that kind of music. We go to movies, we don't go to movies. We do this, we don't do that. If it is all wrapped up in that, there's no holiness. You have missed it. What will happen is that an attitude of looking down on the sins and shortcomings of others will begin to infect both you and your children. All the while, you yourself are guilty of the same sins. Take a good look at chapter 1. Find yourself there because you're there. You're there. Very subtle, very easy to begin to see lost people as our enemies. Those that we need to keep away from us. People made in the image of God. Don't let them get close to me. Don't let them get close to my children. They may defile them. I've got news for you. Your kids are already defiled. 
Because the defilement comes not from the outside, but where? It comes out of the heart. You gave them a good gift, Mom and Dad. You passed along your cruddy, corrupt nature to them. Monasticism doesn't work. You can be all alone on a desert island and you got a pot full of corruption because you brought it with you. The Jews of Paul's day, they viewed the Gentiles as defiled and dangerous. People who were to be kept at arm's length. People who were to be avoided rather than loved. We can fall into that exact same trap. We minimize our own sin while maximizing the guilt of others. We teach our children to do the same thing. All of us have an interesting measuring stick, don't we? It's precise down to the millimeter when we use it to measure everybody else, but when we use it to measure ourselves, it's incredibly elastic. That's who we are. It's just a further manifestation of our own depravity. But the danger of developing a critical, condemning spirit is something we must be aware of and must fight against. Commentator Robert Mount said, Nothing blinds a person more than the certainty that only others are guilty of moral faults. Wow. Nothing blinds you more than being sure that everybody else is guilty. How do you know if you are developing a hypocritical and condemning heart? How do you know? I'm glad you asked that question. You know by this simple test. When you see someone else that's involved in sin, what is your first thought? Is it condemnation or compassion? Is it to condemn them or is it to have compassion upon them as a fellow human being made in the image of God and trapped in the ravages of sin just like you? Luther said, quote, the unrighteous look for the good in themselves and for the evil in others. The righteous try to see their own faults and overlook those of others. We're just beginning to scratch the surface here. If you're here this morning and you've kind of walked in on this, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. All humanity stands condemned. Paul will finally get to that summary statement here. Well, he'll get to it sooner than I will. But in any case, we all stand condemned. See, we all need a substitute, a Savior, someone from outside the system to stand in our place. That substitute is Jesus Christ. The perfect one. The one who willingly bore the guilt 
of our sin upon a cross. After the service here, as Jim mentioned earlier, the prayer room over there, there'll be some men standing by the door, men and women, couples. They would love to talk to you more about how do you receive eternal life? How can this substitute stand in for you? You come and you talk with them. Let them show you. Father God, it's a hard thing to look at yourself in the mirror. And to look intently and to see yourself for who you really are. We don't like what we see, Father, and so we are prone to try to cover it up. I thank you that your word is a true mirror with a piercing light that exposes the depths of who we really are and our desperate need, every single one of us, for Christ. Lord, I pray that today and in the weeks to follow as we begin to unpack this section of Paul's epistle to the Romans, that Your Spirit would apply it where it needs to be applied. That young people would take a good hard look at their own lives and where they are in relation to Christ. And is it just that they've been socialized to the Gospel or have they made a true commitment? I pray, Father, for those of us who are involved in the parenting ministry, the the discipleship of our own children. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to be able and willing to look unflinchingly at our own children. Not for what we would like them to be, but what they really are, who they really are. And that You would enable us to redouble our efforts. To do all that we can do to ensure that their commitment is a heartfelt one. Our Father, we know we are dependent upon Your grace in all of this. We cannot do it alone. That's why we pray to beseech You to intercede on our behalf. Please, Lord, be merciful to us. For Jesus' sake, Amen.